All right. You guys are so hard to corral. <laughs> Good morning again. Hey, I want to re-echo what Rich said. Really do hope you'll be with us on Sunday night in a week. And um, uh, there's a fuller agenda, by the way, on our website. So if you go to the website, click the tab for Vision Night, you'll see a, a complete agenda there for the evening. So again, hope you'll be able to join us on, uh, on that night. New York Times recently had a story about an extreme adventurer, a Swiss woman by the name of Sarah Marquise. In her travels, she has walked nearly 10,000 miles through some of the most demanding and grueling conditions possible on nearly every continent. There are many reasons why she does this. The scarred past, her longing for adventure and survival, seeking solitude and even suffering. But why push herself to such extremes? The writer of the article, he uh, speculates that it's because the territory Marquise is exploring is really internal. The real reason to court a sufferfest, to explore or adventure, or whatever you want to call it, is that it makes a person feel alive. That phrase caught my attention. It's in our mission statement. In many ways, her search is admirable. But suffering, our self-imposed hardship, without the hope of permanent redemption, is just that. It's temporary. It's short-lived. Learning how to reclaim our lives, living with purpose, extending that life into eternity, that's been the goal of our study through the Gospel of John. We are walking 10,000 miles along the pathway of Jesus in order to find, and His life, in order to find the meaning and the purpose of our own lives. Will you stop with me and pause and let's, let's pray for a moment and um, ask God to um, give us faith and understanding to hear his voice and to experience his presence uh, in the midst of our few moments together. Father, we do pray that you would Reveal and to show us more of your heart and your life in these few moments um, that we're together. Let us not miss the very presence of Jesus during our time. Father, we remember today there's great needs around the world. Great needs for believers in Christ that are suffering or that are seeking to heal those that are suffering. And we pray for them this morning. We lift up, Father, our own uh, middle school students this morning, their families. And uh, God, it's not easy growing up these days and it's not easy parenting. And we pray that you might, uh, you might form Christ in the hearts and the lives of those students. You might encourage and inspire those parents. And for those volunteers that are giving away their lives this weekend, thank you for them and pray that you'd really bless their work as they minister in your name. Father, we pray for all these things through Christ.
Okay, three different stories or examples. What ties them together? Story one or reality one. In a few weeks, people are going to enter voting booths all across this country and choose candidates based on their appearance, based on their smile, based on a nice picture of their family, based on their speaking ability, or maybe even a 30-second ad. Reality, too. I, throughout my 30 years of ministry, have regularly heard stories or run into people who are head over heels about a guy or girl that they have only known for a couple of weeks. And they are absolutely convinced that they are the one and they are going to marry them. And all of this is based on a few dates and a few conversations. And yes, Uncle Bob and Aunt Madge dated for a month, married, and then they're in their 55th year of marriage. But they are the exception. Story three. Fifteen years ago, Louise and I bought the land and the home that we now live on. And we were inspired by the vision of the landowner, who's also a builder, who, who sold it to us. And he sold us on a vision of what he was going to do with the property and the old farmhouse sitting on it. And he described that farmhouse kitchen. Man, I was, I was mesmerized. I was, I was sold at that moment. But before the deal was finalized, we actually purchased it, but before the deal was finalized, we were waiting on our present home to sell, or the home we were living at that moment to sell. And before the deal was finalized, while we were waiting, a mysterious, and indeed it was a mysterious, electrical fire burned down the farmhouse to the ground. Only then, only then did we come to realize that the person selling the property had been watched closely by township officials for quite some time for his less than ethical practices. Only then did we learn from other builders in the area of his reputation to take very critical shortcuts. You don't want that kind of thing when you're building a home. In this case, the grace of God saved us. It saved us from the consequence of us not doing our homework, of us not doing our research, of us being naive. Just a little bit of digging around would have unearthed the reputation of this person. So three stories, voting, dating, buying a home. What is the common strand that connects these three realities? Look at John 7.24. John 7.24, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus made this statement. It's page 893 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. We are tempted to make our decisions to arrive at our conclusions without first doing our homework. And this was the precise problem Jesus laid at the feet of the religious authorities. Superficial judgments. They were caught up in their own ambition. They were religiously self-sufficient. They were motivated by the reward of upward status. 
They were anxious not to lose their political power with the Romans. And so because of that, they arrived at quick, snap judgments about Jesus. You know, all around us, we have people asking us to make quick, snap judgments. Political talk show hosts on the left and on the right appeal to us to make quick judgments without looking at both sides. Advertisers appeal to you to buy their products with the flimsiest of rationales, the thinnest of arguments. We don't want to have that same mentality when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to the destiny of our own souls, when it comes to our spiritual lives, the essence of who we are. And so with this in mind, I'd like us to look at this last 12 or 13 verses in John chapter 7, and I'd like to set up for you the scene that we're about to learn about. It might overlap a little bit with where Mike was last week, but let me set up the scene, and as we go through this, here's your outline. There are three things we're going to cover. Is number one, the claim. Number two, the confusion that resulted from the claim. And number three, the control. So there's a claim, there's confusion, and there's an attempt to control. Those three things. That'll be our outline through this talk. So let me set the scene of where we are here. We are on the eighth day of this great Jewish feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the eighth day was the, was, the, was the ending, the climax point of this commemoration. And so what happened was a golden pitcher was filled with water. And it was carried in a great procession. The high priest would lead holding this pitcher, and there were you know, thousands of pilgrims that adventured to Jerusalem were following him. And as they approached, there were three blasts from trumpets that sounded. Those symbolized a very joyful occasion. So the crowd is watching. The choir is singing what's called the Hillel. That's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, the crowd cried out, Give thanks to the Lord, repeating it three times. They prayed God would send in their prayers. They prayed for God to send salvation and prosperity. The worshipers carried in their left hand a citrus fruit representing the harvest. In their right hand they carried this large leaf, a palm leaf, that they would wave. It was a glorious, noisy affair. And when the priest reached this top, this pedestal, the water was poured into a bowl. That was the drink offering. There was also an offering to God, a drink offering of wine was also made. Okay, so why these ceremonies? The water pointed back to the day that God provided water in the barren wilderness. Remember the Jews after the Exodus? They went into that barren wilderness and they experienced what? They experienced the very real threat of not finding any water. What did the wine point to? The wine pointed to the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. This would happen, the pouring out of the Spirit would happen at the beginning of the Messianic age. 
that great ingathering of the nations to the Christ, to God's Messiah. So there was meaning for the water, there was meaning for the wine, and the high priest would pour both water and wine into these bowls. It's at this precise point of the celebration, after the great crowd had responded, chanted, prayed, waved their palms, at this moment as the water poured in, there was complete and utter absolute silence. It was a sacred moment. It's a very sacred moment. We don't quite understand this. Josephus tells us that at one point there was some, there was some uh, enmity between the leaders and the people, and the leader actually took this water and poured it on the ground instead of the bowl. A riot followed, and 6,000 people were killed. This is a sacred moment for the Jewish people. And in that moment of silence, the silence was shattered by a voice. A voice so loud that it could be heard throughout the temple area. It was the voice of Jesus. Not interrupting the ceremonies, but interpreting and fulfilling them. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. D.A. Carson sums this up nicely, saying this, Jesus' claim is clear. He is fulfilling all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide the waters. You can write down these references. Isaiah 55.1, the great prophet wrote, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Isaiah 12, verse 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Jesus was in this great tradition. But He didn't say, go to someone else. Come to Me for these waters. Jesus announces that He is the one who will launch the days of the Messiah and will begin the process to gather all nations to Himself the fulfillment of this is not complete, but it's happening up to this very day in the here and now. Jesus is gathering the nations to himself and the church, the called out group of people, you and me, are his hands and his feet joining with him to accomplish this task. Now this was an astonishing claim. And that's why it could not be ignored if you were a supporter of Jesus, a friend of Jesus, maybe not yet a believer, but you, you liked him and you wanted him to stay out of trouble, and you wanted to see him loved and accepted, and you wanted to think maybe he could bring some kind of political or economic solution, at the moment he said this, you would have just hung your, hung your head and just thought, oh, Jesus, why? Why did you have to say that? 
you would have been sorely disappointed. Because this claim demanded a response. And that leads to our second point, the confusion. Here's the confusion. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, well, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him, but no one laid hands on him. Now let's break this down a little bit. You can write down a reference, Deuteronomy 18.15. And there, Moses predicted that a prophet would come in the future. A prophet uh, like him, a prophet from among the peoples. And in first century Judaism, there was a great hope and a great expectation for this prophet to emerge. So maybe he's him. Others thought, well, maybe this really is the Christ. Many Jews of that era assumed that there were two separate figures to come. No one could really see that Jesus would fulfill both of these. He would be the prophet Moses predicted, and he would be the Christ. But we need to clarify this confusion about where really is Jesus from. John knows where he was born, but he shows us the irony here of those trying to understand it. The authorities like to remind people that Jesus was from Galilee. It was a nice little backwards dig into him. In that, they sought to discredit him because Galilee was rural. Its people were superstitious. They lacked sophistication. And did Jesus grow up in Galilee? Well, indeed he did. It was his boyhood home. This is where Joseph and Mary returned to after their flight into Egypt. Remember that? Remember how they sought to protect the life of Jesus when Herod threatened to kill all the little children, little boys, two years and under, so they fled to Egypt? And when they came back, they were still concerned about Herod. He was the tetrarch, the Roman tetrarch overseeing Judah, so they went they didn't stop in Judah, which is where Bethlehem is, where Christ was born. They went and they landed in Galilee. But indeed, his birthplace was Bethlehem. The leaders either knew it and uh, put out misinformation, or they never even took the time to try to figure out that's where he was from. The prophecy where Jesus was made was in uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was made 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and it predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the exact place of Christ's birth. So, it was the sheer weight of this claim. It was the unashamed assertion to be the Messiah, the one who would give the Spirit, the one who would gather the nations to Himself. That evoked the confusion. That stirred up the crowd. And it leads us to our final point, the control. And what I mean by this is the effort to control his message by the authorities, to stamp out this message. 
Look at verse 45. The officers, we'll find out who these are in a moment. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? You notice how often they use this? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, who are these officials? I want you, these officials that have come back, they are the temple guards. And they're caught up right in the middle of this conflict. Their excuse for not taking Jesus, did you catch that? Their excuse wasn't fear of the crowds. It wasn't that we couldn't find him. He was teaching publicly and openly. Their excuse was his engaging message. They were starstruck. No one ever spoke like this man. The Greek uh, structure of this sentence with the man being at the end of the sentence points to that this is no ordinary human being. Now, if you go back in John chapter 7, you'll notice that they were given the assignment to arrest Jesus in the middle of the feast. That was several days ago. Here's what, again, D.A. Carson says about these guards, these temple guards. Their problem lay partly in the fact that they were not brutal thugs. Mercenaries trained to perform barbarous acts provided the pay was right. They were themselves drawn from the Levites. That's this, this priestly class that worked in and around the temple. They were religiously trained and could feel themselves torn apart at the deepest level of their being by the same deeds and words that were tearing apart the population at large. Their response to Jesus points back to what we learned earlier in this chapter. Look at verse 17 in this chapter. Jesus said, if this was at the middle of the feast, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Remember what we said about this verse? It's a, a phenomenal, it's a staggering thought. What he's saying is this, is judging the authenticity of Jesus' words can never be reduced to merely an intellectual argument even though strong arguments do indeed exist. Rather, it is primarily a matter of the heart's willingness, will, and desire to know God, that your will, the deepest part of you. If a person longs for God, if they genuinely long for God, if they want to know God, what Jesus is saying is that they will find in His words and in His deeds an image, an image that mirrors 
God's reflection, making Jesus and the Father virtually indistinguishable. Okay, let's go back to the story. So, in the story, in disgust, the authorities browbeat the guards, not for their, not for missing their duty, neglect of duty, but for what? For their gullibility. They expected more from them than the uneducated crowds. I mean, at least you guys are religiously trained. And they obviously despise these crowds. You've been taken in by an imposter, they're suggesting, unlike thinking people like us. Have you sunk as low as the people of the land, as these pilgrims were often dismissively referred to? In relation to themselves, the crowd of pilgrims were so far below them, both in spiritual knowledge and in practice, so they thought. And into that same pile of naivety, who else did he dump in there? Who else does John want us to take a look at at this moment? Into that same dump of naivety, they put Nicodemus. Remember him? Remember Nicodemus? Way back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is the guy that Jesus said you must be what? Go ahead and just shout it out. Yeah, you must be born again. This is interesting. Unlike his peers, Nicodemus must have actually gone and listened to Jesus with an open mind. Struck by his words and deeds, Nicodemus sought out a secret conversation with Jesus under the cover of darkness. Now here he again, here again he reemerges, not yet a full-fledged believer, but a cautious supporter of Jesus. Nicodemus points out that does not Jewish law require a fair hearing? Why? Because this is a classic rush to judgment. It's exactly what Jesus was pointing to in verse 24. Do you see the irony here? This whole section is filled with ironies. Do you see it? Those who boast in their law-keeping, those who condemn others for their law-breaking, are smugly breaking that same law in order to control Jesus. And if that's not enough, they continue in their misinformation campaign saying Jesus is from Galilee. That's their negative ad. And even in all their learning, by the way, in all their learning, in all their rush here to get control of the message, they make this statement, which is intriguing. The last verse they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet ever came from that backwoods place. Oh yeah? Is that true? Even some of you know the answer to that question. No. One of their most famous prophets, Jonah, came from Galilee, as well as Nahum. Did the authorities seek out Jesus like Nicodemus had? Did they reflect on his deeds as the temple guards did. John is trying to tell us that their intellectual pride, their smugness, their contempt for others, 
their religious self-sufficiency kept them from honestly considering the evidence that was right before their eyes. They were blinded by it. In Mary's, in Mary's Magnificat, recorded in Luke chapter 1, it was her song after she was told that she would give birth to the Lord and the Savior. As a prophetess, she peers into the future and she says that this would be the way of Jesus. He would fill the hungry with good things, but the rich he would send away empty. So, that's our story. We have a claim, there's confusion, and thirdly, the attempt to control the message. Okay, let me draw out here in just the remaining minutes. Let me draw out three ways that I think this passage really interfaces with our world today. Uh, both if you are a follower of Jesus or if you are still in that investigation process. Here's number one. Expect conflict. Expect conflict. There was conflict then about Jesus' divided opinion, and there is divided opinion today about Jesus. And there is conflict. And I think there's this sentimentality in our minds, this thought that, man, I love Jesus, and he loves me, and I love others. Can't we all just get along? Why does there have to be conflict around this Prince of Peace? Well, this passage shows us that there remains to this day divided opinion about one who makes such staggering claims about the ownership of your life. <laughs> For if Jesus Christ is God in human form, then he has unique ownership for your life. And that creates division. Look at Matthew 10, verses 34 and 35. Page 8, uh, 815. Matthew 10, actually we have it up here too. Matthew 10. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's, Jesus said that? Are you serious? I thought Jesus was pro-family. Hey, didn't the angels, when they announced him there to the shepherds, didn't they say this is the Prince of Peace and he would bring peace? Yeah, indeed, he did. And when the kingdom is fulfilled, when the harvest of souls has been fully brought in, then Jesus will reign over a lasting peace, an unending peace. But until that time, we find ourselves we find ourselves in conflict. And Jesus is not, he obviously is not interested in dividing families. The point of such strong language is that the message brings division, and indeed, of course, in many places, in some places around the world, this actually takes place. The gospel does bring division. We have a man in our own congregation who has, from Syria, who has experienced this personally and profoundly separated 
from brothers who have threatened his life because of the gospel. And what Jesus is saying, there are times when following Jesus requires you to place spiritual loyalties over even, even family loyalties. Listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you should be aware that not everybody is going to stand up and applaud you if you become a follower. And indeed, like in this passage, some people might accuse you of being naive or they might accuse you of believing in a fairy tale message with happy endings. We can experience those things here as well. So that's number one. Expect conflict. Number two, investigate Jesus for yourself. I think it's a clear message here. I think John's paralleling the experience of Nicodemus in the temple garden versus the religious authorities who may not even know where Jesus is from, may not have even ever interacted or, or seriously listened to his message with any kind of openness. And so the message for us is don't simply go by the media caricatures. Don't rely on so-called experts. Don't even rely on me. Go back and read his biographies for yourself. My friend Mike told me here recently, he's been doing a lot of active evangelism recently, and he's run into a lot of people that are, um, you know, have, are skeptics or atheists, and, and it's not true every time. It's not the case every time, but he said many times, even most times, when he asks people who have serious, strong obstacles and objections to faith, he says, have you ever really read the biographies of Jesus? And more times than not, the answer is, and so what is one relying on? They're relying on so-called experts. They're relying on media caricatures rather than the words and the evidences themselves. I think John is saying that that's the same thing the religious authorities were doing. And you have to also realize that quick judgments on Jesus will not suffice. They won't suffice. You know, there's things like, the, like suffering and the reality of evil, and religious wars, or terrible things done in the name of God. All that appeared to discredit Jesus' message. My appeal to you is to look below the surface. To look below the surface. Now, I can't answer all those questions today, but here's a spiritual truth. That God has designed the world in such a way that to find Him, You must want Him. To find Him, you must seek Him. If you are not interested in God, you will find ample evidence on the surface to justify your unbelief. All gets back to what we said in John chapter 7. It's about a willingness to know God's Word. Now here's the third one. And I know I'm going quite long here. But I want to spend just a few moments on this third point, and it's going to be a little nuanced, so I'll need your full attention. But I think it's an important word, an important perspective, particularly for followers of Jesus today. And that's this lesson. Be willing to be corrected. Be willing to be corrected. The, the problem with the Pharisees here is that they were not willing to be corrected. But let me bring that into 2014 in, in our world. 
Today, this exhortation, don't be like the Pharisees, has come to mean something different. It has come to mean today, don't stand for anything. Don't judge anything. So if you declare something to be wrong, a behavior to be wrong, what are you accused of? You are accused of judging. You are accused of being self-righteous. You have become like the Pharisees, and Jesus condemned the Pharisees. And a lot of Christians get confused about this. But I want you to follow the logic of this for just a moment. Follow the logic of this thinking. This means that following Jesus is up to every person's individual version of the truth. If none of us can judge anything. This means that all truth is relative, and there is nothing we can know for certain. And ultimately, the Bible can be read and understood for whatever one needs of it in the moment. It means there is not any independent meaning or truth of the Bible outside of what you need or outside of what you want it to say. If none of us can make any moral judgments about anything, if there's no knowable, discernible truth, then there isn't anything that you can know for certain, including even your own salvation after you die. That's the logic that is used when someone says, don't judge me. Again, we're not talking here about self-righteousness. We're not talking about arrogance. We're not talking about contempt for others. We're talking about simply stating something is wrong or something is right. Again, look back at John 7, 24. What did Jesus say? Very clearly, do not judge by appearances. But then look at the last phrase. Judge with righteous judgment. Discern. Discern. The truth of Jesus is perfect. The truth of the Bible is complete. And there is a reality here that we can discern. Now, indeed, we are infallible. We are imperfect interpreters. And that is why we need one another. We need to be able to be willing to be corrected in our understanding because we are fallible. We are imperfect. But here's something our culture doesn't believe. Or actually, our, here's what our culture believes. Our culture believes this, that it is impossible to hold these two things in tension. That they're always exclusive. Here they are. Possessing strong beliefs, having a strong conviction about truth, and remaining humble. Our culture teaches that those two things never fit together. That they don't match. That to have a strong core conviction about something is to be proud, arrogant, and conceited. And indeed, there are many believers that are this. And many people in general. But it's not the vision of the Bible and the vision of being, being Christ-like. The vision of being Christ-like is to be able to have strong core beliefs and to remain a humble, teachable, correctable person. That's the vision. That's how we can 
have confidence and discernment that we're not like the Pharisees, blinding ourselves, but we are remaining open to the body of Christ, open to learning, and indeed, even sometimes, even sometimes, sometimes even unbelievers, even unbelievers play a role in correcting us, don't they? In our understanding. So three things. Expect conflict. Investigate Jesus for yourself. And be willing. Stay humble. Stay humble. Be willing to be corrected. Have strong beliefs, but stay humble. In the end, we have to remember this. That we are not credited by God. We are not justified by God. We are not saved by God by having the perfect understanding of Him. Isn't that a good thing? It's not like we sort of get our salvation clued in when we get just the right, perfect understanding and perfect knowledge of who God is. Only one person had that. And that was Jesus Christ. Having been with the Father, He had a perfect understanding a perfect discernment of who the Father was. And so our salvation, our reconciliation with God, the basis of our justification is having the heart of a little child and abandoning all of our own intellectual attempts to say that we've got it down and to fully place our trust in Christ Jesus and to say, He is my salvation. He is my righteousness. He is my hope. The Son has a perfect understanding of the Father. And I'm going to put a childlike faith and trust in Him for my own salvation and my own justification. It's why Christ gave His life for us. He gave His life that we might know the Father, but He is the source of our salvation. Let's pray. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Father, thank you today for letting us hear your word and to remember the life and deeds of Jesus the Son. And Father, we pray that wherever those living waters today need to flow in and bring healing and bring power and bring strength and bring hope and bring reconciliation in a broken relationship to bring healing to a scarred past to bring hope to a, a, a feeling of despair a feeling of hopelessness a feeling like I can't make it another day God wherever there's a place where we have been so self-sufficient, so, so money-sufficient, so health-sufficient, so, so focused on me. And the water just simply can't get in because it's all dammed up with our own, our own stuff. God, help us to dismantle the barriers. Help us to dismantle the places where we've been drinking. Father, some of us this week have been drinking a lot, drinking heavily, but not drinking deeply of you. We've gone to all the places where we thought, ah, oh, there's fulfillment, there's hope here, there's, 
some kind of life here, and just we've come here this morning completely and wholly empty. And now, Father, please fill us with these living waters. Living waters that only you can give. As we pray and as we give and as we respond in music and as we sing and remember the things that we believe and as we offer prayers to you in this final segment of our service, God, bring healing. Bring joy. Bring salvation. Lord, for that person this morning who's come here, who's in that point of investigation and is just ready to receive you, God, open up their hearts this morning to receive you into their lives in such a way that they never will be the same again. God, bring living water to us. Let us experience it here as we give back to you through our offerings, through our prayers, through our statements of belief in our songs. Through Christ we pray.